Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. The partial government shutdown is nearly two weeks old, and the incoming Democratic House majority is planning to pass spending legislation immediately to address the funding impasse. What happens from there, though, is unclear. Welcome to the first episode of 2019. This is Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. In the second segment, we'll talk about the major dates facing the new Congress and how the shutdown could be a preview of the battles to come. We'll also take a quick look at new rules and procedures that the House Democrats will use for the 116th Congress. We start, though, with the spending standoff. Joining us today is BGov Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. Welcome back. Thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. When we spoke before the holidays, Congress seemed poised to punt the funding debate until February 8th, and the president seemed like he was on board. That obviously wasn't the case in the end. We know his demand for $5 billion for a border wall is the barrier, so to speak. How do we get to a deal from here? So it seems to me there's two questions that have to be answered. One, what level of funding is going to be acceptable to all sides, if any? And two, what can that money be used for? The word semantics came up over the weekend on some of the Sunday morning talk shows, and I think that's part of the discussion here. Are we still talking about a concrete wall that's yay feet tall? Are we talking about steel slats? Are we talking about more fencing than is currently deployed with technology and equipment and drones and cameras. So I think those are the two things that will be discussed most closely to figure out how to get through this. The Democrats have floated full year spending bills for six of the seven unfunded bills, leaving a a shorter CR for the Homeland Security Department. What all is in that packet? So the the two different proposals, one is, as you mentioned, a continuing resolution just for the Homeland Security Department, reopen that department fully, fund its staff, and get it to an operating status through February 8th, which is the date that had initially been seen as the date for all of the federal government. The other bill takes six full year appropriations measures um, for things like interior environment, agriculture, FDA, basically all the other departments and agencies that are currently in a partial shutdown and would fund them along the lines proposed by Democrats last year. The Senate appropriations bills tended to be more bipartisan, came out of committee with lopsided votes in favor of them. So without the same level of writers that we saw in the House bills, which were more partisan, very narrowly passed through the House or when they were considered. So a much more bipartisan package, not a lot of writers and sort of their opening bid in these discussions now that they have control of one of the two chambers. And there's also um, several other programs that are extended as part of the package that had been kind of held up because of the issues with government funding. So that includes the National Flood Insurance Program, the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards Program, Pesticide Registration Fees, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, also known as Welfare. That one would actually be extended through fiscal 2020. And also some smaller Medicaid programs. As we alluded to earlier, there was an agreement in in place, at least in principle, to fund the government through February 8th before the holiday. And Senate Republicans actually even voted to advance that before it kind of died in the House. Why now the opposition? I suppose it could be argued that the Senate and the House both agreed on February 8th. They just didn't agree on whether or not to put the disaster money in there. 
because both proposals, the one that the Senate passed first by voice vote on the Wednesday night before the shutdown, and then what the House sent back had February 8th as the extension date for government funding. But that $5 billion in wall funding was the sticking point. And we saw senators leave town on Wednesday. Many of them come back on Friday to take this vote to go on the bill. And then they stopped because the principle that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has put out there is unless this is a proposal that Democrats and Republicans can support and the president can sign, he's not going to put it up to a vote. So I think that's why we're in this stalemate for right now, because there doesn't seem to be something out there that meets that test. The partial shutdown didn't immediately shutter every agency that was affected. So why were some like the FCC and the Smithsonian still able to operate these past few weeks? So what we technically have here is a lapse of appropriation meaning that the normal way that government agencies are funded, appropriations from the Treasury, those aren't in place right now if the government agency doesn't have full year funding. Some agencies get money from elsewhere, whether it's fee-funded programs or money they get through donations, whatever the case may be. And they had some balances that they could use to string things along for a couple of days or weeks. We saw, for example, the National Christmas Tree site was closed down for a couple of days, then was able to be reopened because um, a foundation stepped in and gave some money. So if you can find or have other funds to keep yourself open, you can keep yourself open. But some of that wiggle room is closing the farther along this shutdown goes. I know some positions and individual agencies and some agencies programs are also funded by no year funding money that doesn't have a fiscal year limitation. So if it's in their account, they can spend it any time. Absolutely. The the vagaries of government funding come into play here. And of course, many agencies still are operating because they do work deemed essential or their employees are accepted from the furlough requirements that are in place. That's why if you went through the airport at the holidays, you still saw TSA screeners scanning your bags and people were patrolling the border and manning the prisons around the country. So the government may be shut down, but it's only partial because of you know the work that still has to go on and the people still on the job. And just to point out in terms of federal employee pay, that this package does include a provision that would ensure employees who had been furloughed would get back pay for the time during the shutdown. Absolutely. And there's also a way to reimburse states that picked up through their own funding or through their own staffing doing work to paper over the closure of the federal government. So that's pretty routine after a shutdown. Um, and we've seen a few shutdowns in recent years where that's been necessary to try and you know make whole the people that were affected. The thing that's still outstanding, of course, is what happens to contractor staff who aren't necessarily going to be given their their money back or their time back um, that they had to take as leave when the government was shut down. So those are some of the other dynamics we'll be watching in the coming days. Thanks, Lauren. We'll be right back to look at some of the key deadlines in 2019 and the House Rules Package for the new Congress. While there are fewer legislative deadlines in 2019, Congress will once again have to decide whether it will increase discretionary spending caps and how to deal with the debt limit. Lauren Duggan has stuck around to help us out. So the debt limit caps the total amount of debt that the federal government can take on, and that's slated to come back into effect on March 19th, but uh, we know that isn't exactly a hard deadline. Why is that? 
Well, the government does have some wiggle room, and the Treasury Department can take what it calls extraordinary measures to give itself some headroom between where it will be on the date that the debt limit comes back into effect and where it needs to borrow. So that can be about suspending payments it makes or figuring out how to juggle some some other financial decisions that have to be made. Those don't last forever, but they can usually buy you a few weeks or even a few months, depending on the time of year that the debt limit comes into effect. What else is going on with the government's cash flows in and out and just, you know, kind of some general principles that are out there. So that date will be watched very closely. Private groups like to try and forecast what the actual drop dead date will be. But, you know, we often describe that situation as a bit of a cliff because when you get closer and closer, at some point you can't borrow, you can't pay your bills, and you have to make some actual bad decisions then about what to do with the payments that you make if you even can. There's some uncertainty about what happens when you really have hit that debt limit. And that's where the the talk of government default yes, comes up. Yes. And that, that would cause a lot of alarms. And in recent years, Congress, when they've tried to address this situation, they've paired increases in the debt limit with changes to the annual spending caps. What was the genesis of that? So if you go back to 2011, when we had President Barack Obama facing a Republican House, sort of the converse of what we have now, there was a prolonged standoff over this question about raising the debt limit. And Republicans in Congress at the time wanted to pair it with some sort of provision that would put restraint on spending whether it was a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution or some sort of change. The eventual solution that they came up with was, okay, we'll increase the debt limit, but we want to put spending caps in place for the next several years and also try and find other ways to reduce government spending and kind of balance the books better. That spending caps are, of course, still with us today. And that's one of the other questions facing Congress is what to do about the caps in place for the next two years, which would reduce government spending from where it is today. And Congress has actually gone back back since they first enacted those spending caps and raised them each year. So, and what you're talking about is that the lower limit now will come back into effect. So how does the spending debate play into this debt limit issue this time around? So the current debate we're having with the bills that haven't been passed and therefore caused the government shutdown are separate because those are fiscal 19 bills. And we're going to be talking about the 20 and probably the 2021 caps. What we've seen happen in most of the Congresses since the Budget Control Act is two-year deals. So every two years, they sit down, figure out what to spend the next two years. This last year in 2018, it took them until early that year to get an agreement on the spending caps, which is why a lot of the spending debate for two years got compressed into a pretty short period of time. So we could be looking at that again. Now, the bigger pressure here is always on the defense side, where the Republicans and President Trump do want to spend more on defense, but Democrats will demand equal or um, proportionate increases in non-defense spending as well. So we saw a a deal that seemed like it was all but done on these spending bills for fiscal 2019 fall apart over the border wall. Does that raise concerns about a potential debt limit deal coming up in March? It could if if the shutdown goes on or we reopen most of the government, but Department of Homeland Security is on a short-term CR, these things can begin to converge. And deadlines always drive action in Congress. If the deadline affects more than one thing at a time, it can really focus the mind and get people in rooms. And that's where agreements can come up. If the border wall hasn't been resolved around that, you could see that being yet another battle, I guess, in this war over the border wall. With the new Congress comes new rules governing congressional operations, including the legislation we've been discussing today. That's especially true when control of one or both chambers changes hands, as is the case with Democrats taking the House majority. What are the biggest rules 
changes we'll see in the House under the new Democratic majority and presumptive Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So we're going to the first day of Congress, which is kind of an exciting day, the first day of school. Everybody's back. There's all these new members. Really an exciting time. So we'll see the election for the Speaker. We'll see new members sworn in. And then their first order of business is going to be adopting rules. The House basically throws out the rules book at the end of every Congress and starts over. Now most of the rules are just carried over from one year to the next. So what are we likely to see here? Um, The package that they released on January 1, on New Year's Eve, returns many of the rules that Democrats had in place the last time they were in control from 2007 to 2011. So that means that the delegates from territories in Washington, D.C. and the resident commissioner from Puerto Rico, they get to vote again on certain votes that are held on the House floor, seen as a matter of equity for residents of those territories and, of course, Washington, D.C. There are also some changes being made to committees, including renaming the Education and the Workforce Committee as Education and Labor, as they say, putting labor at the heart of that committee's work again. You know, some of these things are about the principles of the party, and some are really about things that they chafed under Republican rule for the last eight years. Some of the rules are going to be retained from Republicans. There was a deal between Nancy Pelosi and some more moderate members, or even just some members of her caucus, about term limits for committee chairs, which was a Republican rule that they put in place. Uh, Republicans also instituted the so-called cut-go rule, which required new authorizations to be offset. Is there anything like that in this rules package? So cut-go was the Republican response to pay-as-you-go. And so the Democrats want to go back to their pay-as-you-go rule. The real difference is what needs to be offset. Pay-go required offsets for mandatory spending increases and tax revenue reductions. The cut-go rule just focused on the mandatory spending side of that ledger. So Democrats will say that they're restoring more fiscal discipline by having tax cuts be brought into that rule as well. Republicans also directed the Congressional Budget Office to consider dynamic scoring, macroeconomic effects of legislation when coming up with their scores. What's that going to be like in the new Congress? So the Democrats are getting rid of the rule that required these for major legislation. There's still an option. And of course, members of Congress could go to the Congressional Budget Office and the Joint Committee on Taxation and ask them for some analysis on these macroeconomic effects. The idea that when you cut taxes, it stimulates the economy in certain ways and that the feedback from that, if you will, should be counted and assessed when you're figuring out what the overall fiscal impact of legislation is. So I think there's still going to be an option there, but the mandatory requirement for major legislation, which is what the rule said, is going away as part of the rules package. We've seen a lot of chatter about transparency in the legislative process and complaints about the openness of floor proceedings is sort of constant throughout the years. Does this rules package open the floor up and will we still see the so-called closed rules for bills? So look, if you're the majority party in Congress, you use the rules to your advantage. That's what they're there for. It's what makes the House an efficient institution when it comes to churning out legislation, passing bills through whatever means necessary, making those changes that you need to get support of 218 members to get a bill over the finish line. So will there still be closed rules? Yes, because part of the deal making requires that you put a closed bill, you know, a closed rule, no amendments, take it or leave it question. You have to put that before the House sometimes. But there are provisions in this package that are trying to restore what members call regular order. They want bills that go through the rules committee, and that's what is kind of the 
gatekeeper for bills that are debated under amendments or sometimes under closed rules. They want the bills that go through there to have first had a hearing and a markup by the Committee of Jurisdiction so that there have been chances for members to get input from stakeholders and then to make their own changes on the floor. So there's a point of order related to that. They also want members to have more time to read the bills by requiring 72 hours between a bill being posted and being voted on. The rule under Republicans was three calendar days or three days, and that's been interpreted to mean that you can have a vote right after midnight on day three, even if the bill was posted close to midnight on day one. So trying to expand the amount of time that people have to read this. And then there's also a committee created in here to look at how Congress does its work and to um, make recommendations on a bipartisan basis for how to improve scheduling and procedures and, and just the way that the House operates. So there could be over time more openness as well, but they start out with this general spirit of wanting to be more open than they believe the House was run during Republican rule. And to your point earlier, leaders often use this to their advantage, and we'll, we often see them change sort of the rules for whatever issues come up if they need to push something through, and they don't necessarily stick to this all the time. Rules are there to be waived, or I would toss back to the name of this podcast, suspended. So yeah, rules are in place, but they can be set aside. A majority in the House can essentially do whatever it wants in most cases. There are some supermajority requirements, but in general, in the House, to get something through, you need 218 votes, and, and you can do it. And that even applies to the rules and the procedures by which you debate something. Before we uh, end the episode, are there any other tidbits in the rules package that, that caught your eye? Well, one of the things reflecting the changing nature of Congress, they're changing the rules about what you can wear on your head on the House floor. One of the new members, Ilhan Omar, is Muslim, and she wears a hijab. And so they're changing the rules to expressly allow religious headwear on the House floor. So you still can't wear a hat or wear something that, you know, for your sporting team or whatever. But um, this is kind of a sign of the times that as the demographics of Congress changes, so do the rules governing um, what you do on the floor. And there are also some of the Democrats' policy priorities in this package. So it also would allow the House to intervene in the court case related to the Affordable Care Act and also would direct the Office of General Counsel to look at uh, possible legal options to address the administration's proposals for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which would strengthen the work requirements there. So we already see the Democrats coming out of the gate trying to push back against the policies from the administration or Republicans that they don't agree with. And another policy area that I'd add to that is climate change. Mm -hmm. They're creating this select committee on the climate crisis. It's not a legislative panel. It's not where the next bill is going to come from, but it's there to study, to make recommendations, to work with other committees and kind of elevates climate change, which touches a number of committees to be kind of its own focal point in the coming years. Thanks, Lauren. BGov subscribers, be sure to follow our ongoing coverage of the shutdown and the 116th Congress at Bloomberg Government. That does it for this week's episode. We'll talk to you all again next week. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.